Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest today was Ali Maki. She's been around since she was a, a Disney kid. She's done so many projects. Right now, you can see her on Big Door Prize on Apple TV with Chris O'Dowd. She's in uh, Randall Park's debut, Shortcomings, based on the graphic novel by Adrian Tomin, the independent film Seagrass, Toy Story 4, Cloak and Dagger. Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on. And she's your friend and colleague, sort of. Yeah, we met because we are working on um, a project based on her family. And every time I talk to her, just like today, she's so polished and physically beautiful, but polished and, and lovely in the way that she speaks, that it would be very easy just to sort of stay at that level. But each time I find there's more and more and more layers of the onion to peel back with her and how much of her uh, family's history she carries with her. I was drawn to the part of her story, which is that she lived in an actor boot camp for kids in Hollywood. So crazy. Only not Hollywood. (laughs) Well, except not not really Hollywood. Santa Clarita, which I don't know where that is. Is that close to Hollywood? Depending on traffic, 45 minutes away. You go outside, you could be in anywhere USA. You know, I was curious to see how adjusted she was, you know, coming from that sort of background. And it seems like she's figured out a lot of it, but also figuring out when she's allowed to not be polite. I don't want to give too much from the conversation away, but when she's allowed to just like say what she needs and ask for it and have it. And I can tell she also really looks up to you. I thought that part was sweet. I liked this interview in particular because she turned the lens on you for a minute. That was nice. I appreciated hearing, well, that a guest turns the lens onto you in particular and said, I would like to hear how you feel about that. So that made this, this interview feel even more sort of grounded and special. We did get to learn about a long time quit with her. And mm-hmm. you get to learn a new word, listeners. It's called enryo, E-N-R-Y-O, which is a Japanese word for being so polite it almost kills you. So here she yeah. is, today's guest on Quitters, Ali Maki. Hey, Allie. How's it going? Sorry about that, everybody. Sorry, especially you, Allie. Sorry about that. No, don't even. Is it it working now? It is. I'm dealing with my own issues. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Can you tell tell us about them? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, how much do you want me to go into it, you guys? I mean, whatever you want to say. No, we feel good about. We want to hear about 
the stuff that doesn't work and yeah. why that's important. The quitting of it all, right? Right. You obviously are a successful actress and a successful, okay, to call you an activist? Go, f- yes, totally. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of what you make it, right? I mean, if you stand up for yourself and you speak for your community, then that is a form of activism. So I, I try to just take the positive parts of it. I think because it's taken me so long to figure out how to use my voice that now I'm like, oh, I, I, I think I know how to use my voice now. So I'm like, oh, if that makes me an activist, then that's great. I'll, I'll take it <laughs> at this point. What was the, the hurdle? What did you have to leave behind to find your voice? I was just such a shy person growing up. Like when I was five and six, you couldn't get me to say a word to anybody. And I think that's why my mom put me in performing. And I started doing musical theater when I was six. And and all of a sudden she'd put me on stage and I'd be in these glittery outfits and I'd be like, like tap dancing and just so loud and playing all these crazy characters. And she's like, wait, how is this the same girl? Is this a different girl? What's happening? Culturally too, within my family, I mean, I'm fourth generation Japanese American. And I think there's a lot that I hold inside. And Julie, we've been talking a lot about this concept of Enrio because we're working together on something fun. And for those who don't know, Enrio is something within Japanese culture that is basically like extreme politeness to the point of you'd want to put others before yourself. And I think in Japan that works like so beautifully because everyone is aligned in doing that. But now four generations later and I'm still like, oh gosh, like, uh, Julie, what do you need? Like, it doesn't matter about me. Like, I'll... (laughs) You and I have talked about this concept a lot. I find it fascinating. Can you give an example, either funny or extreme, that really just personifies Enrio, not necessarily in your life, but in in the Japanese culture? Let's like enact a, a scenario here, right? Let's say I go to Chad and I'm like, Chad, I have a gift for you. And Chad, you'd have to say, Like, no, 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 I cannot accept this gift. Like, the most polite (laughs) thing that you could do, it it would be like, I I can't receive this. This is too much because your guilt and the shame of it sort of is is too much. So you'd have to say, no, Allie, like, I can't accept this gift. And then I'd have to say again, no, Chad, please, I I really want you to accept these tomatoes. Then you can accept the gift. But the next Mm. time you see me, what would be appropriate is now you kind of owe me a gift. So you have to bring me a gift. And then it just repeats itself, right? So you have to bring me a gift. And then I have to say to you, Chad, like, no, 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 no. Like, I I can't accept this. This is too much, Chad. It keeps going. The next time I see you, Chad, I got to give you a gift. (laughs) Does it then actually become you? Is it a performance at first, but it becomes you? You actually do become someone who's humble, I guess, is really what's underneath that. Humble and respectful. Yeah, it's so interesting because a lot of what we've been talking about, Julie, is like the pros and cons of it because I used to have a lot of confusion around it. Like, how does this fit into my fourth generationness in living in, you know, California? Like, how does that work in American society? It's like the proper thing to do would be if I give you a gift, you'd be like, thanks, like I'm taking this gift. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've always had a lot of confusion and a lot of very interesting social interactions throughout my life. And I think it has made me feel a little bit isolated in a sense. But the very first time that I went to Japan, right before the pandemic, and I, it's been my dream to go. And I finally went. And I swear to you, like we got to the Shibuya crossing My eyes were flooded with tears and I couldn't stop this kind of emotional, visceral reaction. And I really think it was because the first time in my life, I saw everyone participating in that concept of Enrio. And I just was like, 
oh, it clicked for me of like how beautiful this can be if everyone's participating and having a society where in Japan, I don't know if you guys have been, but everyone carries their own trash can in their backpack, like throughout your oh, day. Wow. What? Yes. And Wait. everybody, everybody no, participates. No, no, no. Yes. Everybody so, so, so you're picking, if you see a piece of litter, you put it in your personal trash can or you do take no. your own trash with you all there the time. There is no litter, I'm You guessing. would not have to. Ex- <laughs> thank you. Exactly. <laughs> you would not have to do that because everyone is putting their own trash in their own personal like knapsack trash can. I hate public bathrooms. I mean, obviously, I don't know many people who like love public bathrooms. No, but no one loves it. Yeah, no, no one loves it. Maybe a couple people do. But when I am in Tokyo, like at, in the subway station, I'll literally put my things on the floor of the bathroom. That's how clean it is. Chad just said it's it's about being humble. But there is an idea when everybody, like you just said, if everybody's participating, there is something beautiful because it, everyone is quite literally and figuratively cleaning up their own shit. Like nobody is leaving it to the next person to do. So there is a yeah. sense of personal responsibility that comes with this humility. And I think that's really beautiful, but has it held you back? Because you're an American girl. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. You're an American girl. (laughs) I am, Julie. Thank you. I really (laughs) am. And the first time we met, we talked a lot about this. I was raised by such amazing women and also my, my dad and my whole family, like, is very aligned in this concept naturally because it's just been passed down. And I think it definitely has help me back. And going back to our original thing of like finding my voice, I feel like this weird, not a stutter almost, but I have a gut reaction of like, I have something that I want to say, but I'll instantly like the Enrio in me will be like, okay, don't say that because think of your mom. Maybe Julie will feel uncomfortable. Maybe Chad will have a different perception. Like all these things are going off in my head, like not anything of my voice. It's just of other people and what I think they might be perceiving. And so it took me a long time to fight that of like, oh gosh, okay, Julie, Chad, it's going to be fine. Like, and Allie, you can just say, and if other people are uncomfortable or if they don't like what you say, then that's okay. And we can all just sit in the uncomfortableness. (laughs) If I was to be going against my gut reaction, it would be the Enrio reaction of, I'm going to censor what I have to say so that other people feel okay about it. Ali, I'm tracking your bio and your backstory and stuff. It sounds like you were raised that way in the house. Did you go to live with a manager when you were a teenager? Is that right? (laughs) That's the thing that jumped off the page at me. I was like, wow, that's really unusual. How did that go? And why did you go off to live with um, a manager? What was that experience? Growing up, I did all this musical theater. And that was where I was like, oh, I'm finding my voice. But I think what it was is I'm playing a character. So it's not really Ali in saying, this is what Mm -hmm. I think it's, oh, this is a Mm -hmm. character. And I think that was my cheat code around Enrio of like being bold and being brave, but through these characters. So I loved doing musical theater. And then when I was 13 and a half, I was in this kid acting class in Seattle. And it was one of those funny things of like, I basically got scouted in a mold. Like, hey, you kid, like, want to come out to LA and like live in this house of actors and be a star? And I'm like, Ah, like, I can't believe this is happening to me. So I went for what was supposed to be a summer because it was marketed as this like summer boot camp, like come out for the summer and like try your hand at acting. I begged my parents and, you know, they're just so supportive and wonderful. They were like, absolutely. And so I went and then I'm still here, guys. I'm I'm still here. I'm in my thirties now and I'm, 
I still never went back. I mean, what was it like? Like, did they tutor you there? Was it, what was the socializing process like with all these other kids who were basically at boot camp now for their life? It was quite a shock. I went and just thinking like, oh, we're going to go to Hollywood, California, you know? And then I get there and we're in Santa Clarita, you know, in this condo with these two beagles and all of these kids. And the way it worked is the kids would come in and come out like during pilot season, all the kids would come. And there was this one guy named Jonathan who was like the cool guy. And we're like, Jonathan's coming for the summer. Definitely. A, I grew up instantly in that moment, you know? And I think the manager was, uh, shall we say, not the most... I, I think Ethical? a lot of, yes, I think <laughs> everything that she was, here's my Enrio kicking in again of like, not yeah. saying the truth, but like, what is she going to say? <laughs> I mean, it jumps off the page when you read it. That is a thing that existed. If I have a child that this is not something I'd want her to be in. And I'm so glad that I'm still a sane, healthy, safe person, because I can just imagine like my mom sending her daughter off and then living in this condo with all of these strangers going around Hollywood just sort of by ourselves. You know, she lived there with us, but she had so many things going on. She was running the studio and she had like the moms drive around the other kids and then the older kids taking the other kids to set and auditions. And it felt like a TV show at times. How many lived in this house? That it really just depended on the time of year, you know, like during pilot season, then all the kids would come. But I was one of the ones that would just live there year round. And then I did go to public school and there was a bunch of kids that also went to public school. So we went together. And in my high school, I was like, oh, those are the kids in the house. Because we'd roll up in this minivan, like this Honda, whatever, (laughs) Honda Sonata, whatever, minivan. And the doors would roll open and all of us kids would get out and go to school. And and the other kids are like, oh, those are the kids in the house. How old were you? I was 14. Yeah. I say that from like- 14. Yeah. We've all heard the nightmare version of this. This sounds um, weird and a little dicey, but it doesn't, unless I'm reading it wrong, it doesn't sound like it really crossed a line into anything really dangerous. Was it ever though frightening to be a 14-year-old on your own? No. I think when you're 14, you're like, this is awesome. It's almost like a scene in a movie. I remember the moment I got there and I got to this condo and it was like, not the greatest. They had this carpet that was like brown, but also green, which I think was just like so dirty. And it just was not in my <laughs> in my head what I expected. All the kids are like loading dishwashers and stuff. And, and I remember the manager like looked at me in that moment and she's she could clock that I'm like, processing like something's wrong here as a kid, like something's wrong, right? But I'm so naive. And I remember in that moment, she said, you know, well, this is what it means to be an adult. You want to be an adult, right? And and that instantly was my whole, anything that could have been a question mark Mm. now became sort of like trade-offs because I think if I was to tell my parents, I'm not sure about this, this, and this, like I'd probably have to go home and then abandon my dreams, you know? So for me, it was always like, Ali, just stay focused on the end goal and the dream. And I think that's kind of just how I made my way through it. I was never scared. It was more so, I think I put aside all of those things as, oh, this is normal. This is normal. This is what it means to be an adult. I mean, you're 14. You have no clue. Like, I'm just like, none. Oh, this must be what a nine to five is like. like is this common? I don't even know what to call it. It's like camp, kind of, but it's, it was like, it's like model houses in New York. They right. have model in New York, Paris, mm. London, uh, you know, big fashion centers. They always have these flop houses of, full of models. And there's like bunk beds of rooms, and the girls are paying a minimum. They have a, a place to sleep 
sleep. But I've never heard of it with actors. In this day and age, never would happen. But this is like early early 2000s. The way that she would communicate with the parents is she had a blog, a version one blog when blogs had no pictures. It was just, you know, written word. And she'd write like, happy Saturday. (laughs) Like, Allie's crushing it. Like, (laughs) David's, you know, got a commercial for T-Mobile. And all the parents would read that, you know, and be like, oh my gosh, all the kids are killing it. In the house downstairs, there was a, a fax machine in the corner, like a giant fax machine. And I'd have a calling card and I'd use the calling card, pick up the corded phone and call my mom. How's it going? Da-da-da. Good. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. And then hang up and save my minutes on my on my calling card. What's the agreement with the manager? Is it that, like, does she then get a chunk of your earnings as a young actor? This feels like the Peter Pan situation. Definitely. Peter Pan in a lot of ways. It's a typical like manager actor agreement where she's taking a commission, but then the parents are also paying her rent. It trickles into the diciness of it because oh yeah. on top of that, she had an acting studio and then the kids all had to take the acting classes too that she talked. Mm, so wow. now we're talking <laughs> about multiple streams of revenue from families and I think that's where it, it also gets really dicey. How much of you is Enrioing right now about the experience? You could just give us a percentage number. Like, Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Are you holding back 10%, 80%? I've practiced so much in being able to speak and use my voice that now if I'm standing up for something that I think is wrong and shouldn't happen anymore, I'll tell you what you need to know, you know, while, while still being respectful or whatever. But I think this is something that shouldn't happen anymore, especially to children in the industry. I think being in the entertainment industry is already so scary and so hard, and it can just mess with your mental health in so many different ways that I think it's one of those hills I'd be willing to die on, you know? Let's protect our children in the in the arts, you know? Because it always starts right. as something so beautiful, like musical theater, you know? And that's where I found my confidence and my voice, and then it took me on this whole journey, living in the house. Have you tracked like the other kids? I'm guessing you're probably like the the success case of the crowd. She was good at picking kids. There's a lot of kids that are doing well or were doing well back in kind of the like Disney Nickelodeon time of my life. More so in that time of my life, I would say. One of the guys I lived with did my makeup a few years ago and he became a makeup artist. No. Mm. Yeah, and we were That's both like, crazy. the house. Like, oh shit. Oh my God, the house. <laughs> Haven't seen the you since house. then. The house. The house. I got a Facebook message a couple years ago. I don't really stay in touch with anyone, but I think we all kind of know of each other's existence somewhere in the world. One of the things that is sort of a quit in your life, but you can define it better, is music. Not that you've quit it completely, but the pursuing it full-time as a musician doesn't seem to be something that you're doing now. Can you tell us about when you were pursuing music and what that was like? Are we talking about the band formerly known as the Valley Girls? (laughs) We are, and that's Valley with an I. Ladies and gentlemen, V-A-L-L-I. Okay, yeah, we could, (laughs) I love this interview. Julian Chat just, (laughs) they get into it. We have a dossier. (laughs) We got the dossier, man. You said your first love was musical theater. You were classically 
trained as a pianist, you clearly had some chops in the musical area. But now, as far as I know, you're primarily an actor full-time. You are not pursuing music. I just want to know about this interlude. It was an audition that I got. I was looking for someone to be in this girl band. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, you know, but they were like, oh, this would be a really good opportunity. You know, they're looking for an Asian girl that can play the piano. And I was like, (laughs) Where are we going to find one of those? I know. (laughs) Here I am, I guess. So I would be at my grandma's house and they're like, you got to learn how to play a song. So I, I was in her house and I learned how to play Skater Boy on the piano. And I learned a couple of Avril Lavigne songs. And then I showed up for the audition. I did it for everybody and they placed me with the other girls because they were only looking for one more member. It was the managers of the Backstreet Boys, but not the, oh. but not the Lou Pearlman of it all because oh, obviously okay. he was in jail uh, I was like his other partner. So it was like their next thing that they were going to make. They ended up asking me to be in the band and it was called the Valley Girls. And we went around and we played shows and we rehearsed at SIR in North Hollywood. What happened with the band? What happened with the musical career? It was fun for a minute. You know, I was classically trained. I mean, you know, I'm not good, but growing up, I was classically trained. And then here it was like, oh no, we're just like, you know, playing by ear. And also they're like, you're going to be playing this. And then they handed me this keytar, which I don't know if you guys know what a keytar. Oh my God. It's Uh, it's a a keyboard that's also a guitar in the shape. Yeah, it's got a little handle at the end, right? Yes. (laughs) It's got like a little It like hangs around your neck, right? Like a a guitar. (laughs) Yes, exactly. There's a strap and then there's an, and then this. I think it became famous because of like, Robin Sparkles. Did she play it on How I Met Your Mother? Remember, she was like a secret pop star. I feel like she played it too. Yeah, she was in commercials back in Canada, as I recall. My fiance always calls me Robin Sparkles because he's like, you had a secret pop past. But yeah, they were like, <laughs> here you go. This is what you're playing now. And I was like, what is this? I, I don't, I, I've played lock and, and that kind of stuff, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. Wow. Just do stuff. And I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll, I'll do stuff. Like I'm such a, a homework girl, like if someone gives me an assignment, like I want to nail it. Like I want to get that A. <laughs> I want to get it right. So I was just like, okay, you said do stuff. So I'm going to make it look like I'm doing all the stuff. Julie also says about herself in different ways that like she really knows how to lasso an A. Like that, that's you a thing. You gotta get an A. When you have really like crafted and perfected and become someone who can give people what they want to get the check mark or whatever, Do you at all lose touch with what you want underneath that? Do you become someone that is just always giving, basically? I think something you touched on about kind of losing yourself, and that's something I definitely resonate with in more of my acting journey. Definitely became sort of a checkbox thing once I moved into that house and started to do well, I guess, going to the auditions and making people laugh. I was like, check box, like, great job, Allie. Doing all of these auditions and prepping so much. But I think looking back now, I realize the homework was flawed. And I feel sad at looking back at my 14-year-old self of being so excited to nail these projects that weren't necessarily good for my own self-worth, my own confidence, and especially my community of Asian women that look like me. All these parts were very much like, hey, can you do an accent? Okay, check, like homework, I got it nailed. I'm I'm going home and I'm practicing this accent, this Asian accent that is gonna make all these executives laugh. And then it's sad that that became my homework. And I, I would think 
Allie, you crushed it. Like, sorry, I, I get like a little bit sad looking back because I just think mm. of how excited I was to please people and how excited I was at the thought of like nailing this assignment. Yeah. I mean, but that's where we were, right? In that time. You're being asked to do a stereotype. Yeah. Was it a Japanese stereotype or just a generalized Asian stereotype? Oh, I think generalized Asian most of the time. Which makes it even more of a gut punch. Absolutely. I mean, you feel like you have no identity. And then even within that, you're just grouped together as like Asian or accent. The majority of them for Asian women at that time were fetishized, exoticized characters, Mm. which would be Mm -hmm. on the spectrum of sexy kung fu woman, the tiger mom, scary villain or something like that. Or like the massage women, the whole happy endings thing that was always a joke. How many masseuses have I gone out for? Or like sexy this, sexy that, exotic this, exotic girl one, exotic girl five. Like whatever. And then that would also go to the other end of the side, which is the nerdy girl. The, you know, they always say like the sidekick, like you're the best friend that's there to push the lead girl story forward. Doesn't really matter what your story is. You're there as an accessory. And the saddest part about being an accessory within TV and film and media is that it really permeated into my real life. Like that became... Mm real for me because if you're always thinking like, oh, that is what I am and that's what I am in this world and what I'm useful for, then I like kid you not, I would like walk a little bit behind my friend or I'd be like, again, like whatever you think. And it just kind of further facilitated this idea of Enrio, but like not in the positive direction, right? Where it's like for my own self-worth, it was kind of exacerbating it in a more negative direction. And that really like led to a lot of my anxiety, depression, my loss of my whole identity within my early 20s and teenage years. And how did you start to discover or rediscover your own identity? Oh, I think that's something I'm still working on. But I think the greatest thing was obviously just as I was kind of learning and finding my voice, and finally those conversations were happening kind of universally within the entertainment industry and also the world of representation. I mean, that was not something I ever heard about as a teenager. But they were things that I always felt in the back of my head, just little question markers like, why is that? Like, why could I never be the lead? Like, why is it such a preposterous thing of like, maybe I could go out for the lead and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, that's not something they're interested in, right? And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Well, keep doing what you do good, Allie. And when those conversations of representation started to happen, it started to kind of validate those little tiny voices in the back of my head that I'd always had that I thought maybe Mm. I was crazy for. And like, hey, voices, like, go away. That doesn't make any sense. But now all of a sudden, it just felt like I've been gaslit my whole life. And now I was like, the whole time I was right. I should have trusted those voices, but there was no one around at that time to really support or validate those voices. So I think a lot of it was just the timing of everything happening at once. Not to keep going back to the camp house, but like, (laughs) I guess that's the part that strikes me as the most dangerous about it is you're taking kids to a place where there's no one to tell them who they really are. There's no one even to like see those little sparks of who they really are. There are people, you know, our age who don't ever find themselves after something like that. Mm. Was there anyone that you leaned on to help you do that? Was there a friend that could actually see you? I mean, I have an amazing family. Like I, I I really attribute them being around and always being a grounding force for me. I mean, I have two older brothers. So if I ever do anything, they'll do the big brother thing of like, 
stay in your lane. Like, don't do this. And like, okay, yeah. Like instantly humbled back to earth. And I love that. Like your family will always put you back in your place and it's great. But I will say like, I think a lot of that strength and resilience to just keep pushing really comes from the women in my family. I mean, my mom Mm -hmm. was a single mom, a special ed teacher her whole life. And then my grandmother, you know, we talk a lot about this, Julie. It's kind of interesting because it really mirrors my story in a very weird way, but very differently. Mm-hmm. When my grandmother was 16 years old, she was a senior in high school and uh, World War II hit. And instantly her family and 100,000 other Japanese Americans got sent to the in- incarceration camps. There was 10 all over the country. She was sent to the one in Wyoming. First, they were sent to the Santa Anita racetracks, which interesting, if you ever go to the Santa and I need racetracks, know that at one point in time, that was where all of these Japanese Americans were held, sort of like mm. the holding center before they were all put oh on. Oh my God. Yeah, before they were all put on trains to 10 different locations around the country. And my grandmother was sent to Wyoming, and it was a place called Heart Mountain. She was incarcerated there with, I mean, the whole family for like two to three years. So she was, interestingly enough, as a teenager in a house of her own, weirdly. And after the war was over, the camps were, you know, disbanded and everyone was left with $25 and a bus ticket. Like that's what they got. But before then, everything was stripped from them. I mean, my family had a a farm that they had bought, gone. Everything was either like taken or sold away for discount, houses, homes. I mean, we're talking about full communities here though. And that's a lot of the things that people don't remember is like Japanese Americans have been in this country for so long. So it's like, I mean, they were like set up. They had full communities. They were like in Girl Scouts and brownies and baseball teams and going to normal public schools and all these things. So it's not like it was like, oh, they just got here from Japan. Like, no, they were American citizens. And that's what's so horrifying about it. And I find it so interesting. My kids are just learning about this right now. And they're learning a completely different version than I learned, which was a footnote on page 4,000, you know, in high school. Oh, there were these internment camps. But my kids learned about Fred Korematsu and they learned about how he sued the government and didn't win and how in 1988 finally was recognized. But I'm wondering, do you think that the reintegration into society obviously must have been different for the Japanese? They they were looked at differently. They felt like they were not integrated into society. They weren't Americans. They weren't being treated like the American citizens that they were. How much did the sort of embryo of it all hold them back? The idea that they were sort of model citizens then and had to be extra good must have dovetailed too well with Enrio. I think it was very split. And this is something that is still sort of an issue to this day within the Japanese American community because there was something called the questionnaire that happened in the camp. And it was something that you, the U.S. government gave to everyone that was in the camp and basically had two questions that were very um, divisive because I think they were created to be divisive. And one of them was, do you like give away all of your um, loyalty to the Japanese emperor? Yes or no. And again, they're U.S. citizens. So they're, you know, think like what? And the second question being, would you drop everything and go fight for the U.S. army? Like, you know, basically like with complete loyalty, yes or no. And that question was sort of what divided everyone because there's two different schools of thought. One is, 
wait, we're incarcerated here by the government. Why would we go serve while we're being incarcerated, right? And that's one way of kind of like being an activist about it. But the other side is like, of course, like I'm an American citizen. That is my duty. That is my loyalty. And I want want to go and prove that loyalty by going to serve in the U.S. Army, which is what my grandfather did. He enlisted in the U.S. Army without question. And his whole feeling was, yes, I'm an American citizen and that is my duty and that is what I want to go do. And he was in the 442nd unit, which was this unit comprised of all Japanese American men that uh, ironically went on to be the most decorated uh, unit of the American army. There's this exercise that they do at the Japanese American Museum where you have to choose what side you would choose, right? Because it's almost like you're both standing on the side of equality and freedom, right? But it's like two different schools of thought, right? But I think at the end of the day, the problem was white supremacy orchestrating this to kind of divide them. And it's sad because there's a lot of people that that still have hurt feelings or there was a lot of families that were torn apart by this question. And it was something that should never have existed in the first place. It's not something that they should have ever put these people in these positions and obviously never incarcerated them to begin with. We started sort of laughingly going, finding your voice. And yet there it is when your voice is sat on it's not something that is talked about a lot. And like I said, my kids are starting to learn about it in school. And mm. part of that, I imagine, is because of, again, the model minority stereotype, which is that Asians are hard workers and they get along and they're mm-hmm. the good ones. They don't cause us any trouble. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, isn't finding your voice always going to rub someone the wrong way. It doesn't mean it's causing trouble, but dissent is not comfortable for everyone. How do you sit with that in the middle? And I'm trying to lead you actually to talking about Asian American Girls Club because that seems to be sort of your intersection of this. 100%. I think you hit it right on the head. That is all of everything we talked about, my journey in the house, my grandparents' journey in the camps, all of that is the culmination of of why I wanted to create Asian American Girl Club. And it was not something that I tried to do. It was just something that just came out. And I think it's one of those things where it's when things just are bubbling up in you for so long that it just came out in this messy thing of, I don't know what it is. And I had no plan for anything. I just was like, I need to have this exist in some capacity because I feel like I'm repressing too much. I'm keeping everything inside and I'm also alone because I have no other Asian American girlfriends or allies or people to talk to because I do kind of isolate in a way where I'm like, again, Enrioin, I don't want to be a burden to anyone, so I'm just going to keep this inside. It's a teenager, right? If you like say, don't do that, then all of a sudden the, the repression is going to come out and they're going to go like get a tattoo or something. And I feel like Asian American Girl Club was my version of, of going and get a tattoo. Getting on the a side. tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> Can you describe what it is? Yeah. So Asian American Girl Club, you know, when it started, it was really after Crazy Rich Asians came out. And it was the first time that I'd seen all of this explosion of love and support for the Asian American community, but also within ourselves too. Because, you know, we come from so many different countries, Korea, Japan, you know, Thailand, wherever. And I was just so mind blown. It was kind of what we're talking about of like those bubbling up of conversations. I was like, wow, now it's reaching our community. I wanted to think about like, how I can help, like what I can do and kind of all of these things that I was feeling. And my thought immediately went to Asian American women, not only because of the amazing strong women that have raised me, 
But growing up in the entertainment industry, Asian American girls, we all kind of stayed separate from each other. And I realized that it was a lot Mm. of that Hunger Games mentality of, well, there's only room for one. So that's your enemy. Like, that's not your, that's your competition, right? When really I realized oh no, that's actually my friend and my comrade and that's someone that we should be able to support each other, not be against each other. I just dropped this as a logo. I had no idea what it was going to be. I just couldn't get this name out of my head because I was the girl that was in all the clubs growing up and I would quit all of these clubs. Speaking of quitters, um, (laughs) so I thought I was a quitter, but as an adult, I realized, no, it was just because there was no other people that looked like me, that I was able to kind of like share that depth of human experience and background with. So I wanted to kind of create a space for Asian women to be able to unite and collaborate. And five years later, it's just organically and authentically evolved into this incredible community. We do events, we have a book club, we do shirts, we do apparel, we are going into production company world, which, you know, know, Julie, we're working on stuff, which is just like the dream of my life. So, yeah. What was the turning point that made you see other Asian American women as community rather than competition? And I guess as a follow-up on that question, are there any moments where you have to like, remind yourself, we are community, we're not competition. Like, does that old way of thinking ever flare up for any reason? I feel like this goes into, and I'd love to hear, Chad, maybe like your thoughts on it too, because it's still something I'm trying to figure out is like this whole idea of like the scarcity mindset. And Mm. I think it's sort of something, Mm. again, sort of like Enrio, like if that's all you know, and you're growing up in it, and that's all you see, And when you open a magazine, there's no one that looks like you. And it does kind of like push forward that whole like homework girl thing. Cause you're like, oh, well, I want to be the one that, that breaks the odds. Like, and I want it to be me. That's something that can be really beautiful in a way. Cause it's ambition. And I think everyone has that, but when it's kind of rooted in scarcity, it can become really confusing and isolating. And I think once I realized, oh, we're all feeling that way. Like we all feel really alone. I don't know. Yeah, Chad, I'm interested to hear if you've kind of dealt with. I relate. I definitely, I relate to the impulse to try to be the one sometimes. I don't know if you've you've felt this. Well, you said it. You've you've isolated sometimes. Like Mm. I've realized sometimes trying to be the one has left me feeling like really alone and deserted. And it's just not fun. No matter how many like well-meaning, you know, or or allying friends I have that are people of other races in a room, if I'm there and I'm the only black person, it's just it's miserable for me. It takes years. Like it's something that I have been taught from the my childhood. Think abundantly. Um, there's always gonna be more opportunity. You're gonna do great and bring people that you care about with you. I've been taught that, but The other thing I've also been taught and shown is like, there's only going to be one show for the black guy. And then there's going to be one for the black woman, or maybe Mm -hmm. there's only one for the two of them. And you guys got to, you got to duke it out and see who gets it. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I see that you do so many different forms of creativity. There's real power in in being able to create opportunity for people who look like you. Like that's a whole other dimension of this conversation. But the impulse is still there. The impulse is always still there to be the best one. And I hate that impulse. It's really inhumane, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And to be the best one, I think 
a lot of people would maybe assume, oh, that's like a selfish act. But again, I think it goes back to safety. If you have an immigrant story or like an American dream story, it, it all goes back to safety because again, like a whole sector of people being incarcerated it, after the camps, it's like, do everything you can to be perfect, to get those hmm. grade A's. And that's why my mom right. says, my mom <laughs> says she is the model minority generation. That's like where it was born in our family right. because my grandmother was like, we just got out of the camps, do right. well in school, like get a good job. All of our generational wealth has been taken away, right? So we have nothing. So you really need to build and you need to build well. Otherwise, we have no shot at anything. And I think that's the kind of mindset that has continued to permeate the next generations, right? Of even me of like, keep it going, Allie. Like, look at what your ancestors have done. Look at all that's been taken and all that's been rebuilt. Like you need to continue that legacy on and legacy is such a big word, but then we're trying to build still within scarcity. I've felt that same handed down form of thinking. Like, even though the probabilities are so against you, like just try to give Mm. yourself the best chance. Just like try to seize the 7% chance that you can have a healthy life and have a family and be wealthy and all this other stuff. Do I still chase it while always like, that voice you talked about being in the back of your head, like I still always know that voice is back there, which is that even if you are moving rationally, there's a larger power that's not, you know, there's a larger power that sometimes can still just decide, I don't want you around here, or I want you doing this. It's just very difficult to reconcile the two. I kind of admire how you're able to like hold space for the concept that you all have repeated a thousand times that I've already forgotten the name of. Can you say it again? Enrio. Oh, yes, Enrio. How you're able to like hold space for being um, graceful, for lack of a better word. I can see your other emotions in there. I can see anger and resent and all the other stuff. That's just really difficult to do, man. So I, I admire it. Wow. Thank you so much, Chad. I admire you for doing, I mean, I admire both of you and, and Julie just for being so present with all of our conversations. I mean, that was really what like drew me to you in the first place was that first conversation we had. Julie and I kind of met for a project and in a lot of meetings, especially someone like you, who's like such a successful actress and everything, they will do a ton of talking, right? And and speaking for a person. And mm. I felt like, Julie, all you were doing was listening and asking questions. And a lot of this discovery of Enrio came through our discussions because you were asking me things that I was like, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Maybe it is because of Enrio. Like, maybe it is because of this. Like, and you were, you were like confidently able to challenge a lot of what I was thinking to or not saying, you know what I mean? Thank you for saying that. That's really nice because I do sit here as I listen to you guys and I'm like, but it is more than ever the time to listen. I love asking questions and learning. Allie, I was going to ask, your dossier is so full of My work dossier. and experiences. I'm your like, dossier. have you had like pockets of time where you're not working on the next thing? You're not auditioning. You're just like in pure reflection mode. Have you had any of those in the last, you know, 20 years that you've been doing this, 20 plus? I mean, it really was the pandemic. And I've actually never talked about this before. My father passed away last summer. And I think Mm. that was the first time in my life that I've ever stopped because I was in New York filming a movie and I got the call half hour before I was supposed to be on set. The perfect example of Enrio right here is obviously I'm in shock and I'm I'm heartbroken. He was very sick, but I didn't think it was going to happen in the three weeks I was gone, right? So that was the surprising thing. But immediately all that I thought was, I have to be on set in half an hour and I don't want to let all these people down. I need to be there. 
and I want to be on time and I'm not going to tell anybody. And that is like my gut reaction. Right? I'm thinking, I'm not going to tell anyone. And then this, this is where Enrio gets so tricky, right? Because I called my brother and I was like, okay, I got to go to work because I'm filming this movie that's important and dad would want me to, to crush this. He gave everything so I could be an actress. Mm -hmm. Like he's happy right now because I'm off living my dream. I call my brother and he's like, you're not going to tell your director, like your boss. He's like, I think you should tell them. And I was like, I don't want to do that. That's going to disrupt the whole day. Like, you know, and then I thought about it, and this is where it's so amazing with representation. It was a film that was being directed by an Asian American man. Randall Park was directing it. Um, the, oh, wow. The producer was like a longtime friend of mine. So I was surrounded by my community and like friends and people. And I was like, in this instance, I was like, Allie, the right thing to do is to shed the shackles of Enrio and speak up and say something. And it became one of the most beautiful, most bonding moments I can think of in my career is like making that call and everyone stopping everything to say like, we're there for you. What do you need from us? Like we'll change the entire schedule if you want to go home right now, like anything you need. And those type of moments in this industry that are, that, are, that can be life-changing because you think it's going to go one way and then it completely changes everything. And I remember Randall, he said like, th thank you for, for telling us because a lot of times when you're filming movies and stuff, you, you get so caught up in like the go, go, go and like, let's get it right. And he's like, it was a, it was an amazing moment for all of us to stop and think about like, you know, our parents and like why we're doing this and why we're working so hard and all of these things. So I felt so loved and supported in that moment. And I can't imagine not telling them. And I think about it all the time, like, okay, mm -hmm. Allie, if you had not told them and then you get to right. set, eventually you're going to have to tell them. And then they're going to think, why didn't you tell us? Now it seems weirder if I don't tell them until later. You know what I mean? This And this is where the, like, the social implications right. of Enreal get really tricky because you you think you're doing the right thing. But then two days later, they could be like, wow, I guess we're not really that close because you, you didn't even want to tell us and how weird that is that you didn't tell us. Anyways, this is what goes on wow. in my brain. Well, I'm so sorry that it took the death of your dad to kind of push you over that edge. But what a beautiful story. And thank you for sharing it. That was beautiful. I'm blown away. <laughs> No, uh, thank you guys. I love talking to y'all. It's it's so refreshing. And every time I talk, we talk, Julie, I'm like. I mean, it literally was like, and she goes to set and she just does her job. And I'm like, oh, she doesn't. It's the best movie ending ever. <laughs> and it's the best real mm. life moment of making yourself vulnerable and finding that there's strength in that. And it really is was a decision between living in scarcity or living in abundance. Because if I was to not tell them, then that's me choosing to live in scarcity. Like, this is the only job. This is the only day on set. And these people are going to hate me. Whereas living in abundance of like, these are my friends. This is my community. We're all there for each other. And there's going to be so many more opportunities uh, for everybody. There's no doubt in my mind that there's going Thank to be you, a gajillion Allie. more opportunities for you. She's on right now. The Big Door Project on Apple. Mm -hmm. Every time I turn on the TV, it just like that, there you were. And like, you're on everything <laughs> all the time. And we are working together and hopefully that will also be something everyone will get to see. Yes. Um, but thank you so much for coming and sharing and being funny and warm and kind of breaking my heart a little bit with that last story. I really appreciate it. No, thank I, you, thank I love you. you guys. So nice to meet you, thank Chad. You. You're awesome. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. 